0: Half Price Horror Hello and welcome to Half Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half Price bookstore. I'm your host John, and today we'll be taking a look at The Bride from 1985 adapted from Mary Shelley's novel Frankenstein by Lloyd von Wiel and directed by Frank Rodham. Mary Shelley is, of course, widely acclaimed as one of the first and most inventive writers in what would become known as the genre of science fiction, and her famous novel Frankenstein has been adapted again and again for film and television in one form or another from Thomas Edison's 1910 silent version right up until the present day. Guillermo del Toro is set to adapt it for Netflix, with Andrew Garfield and Mia Goth, in fact. Rodham and Fonviel are less well-known. The former is probably most famous as the creator of the show Masterchef, and the latter for his contributions to Cherry 2000 and 1999's The Mummy, and certainly they were even less well-known in 1985 than they are now. Rodham had directed a couple of indie films that attracted attention, one based on The Who's album Quadrophenia that starred an up-and-coming young actor-slash-musician named Gordon Sumner who billed himself as Sting, and the other, The Lords of Discipline, was based on a novel about hazing in a military academy that was adapted by Lloyd Fonviel. The two men then selected as their next project what they claimed was a quote-unquote feminist take on the Frankenstein story. Presumably, it was vitally important to stress that it was a take on the Frankenstein story rather than on the 1935 film Bride of Frankenstein, from which it clearly drew inspiration, because this was a Columbia film, and Bride of Frankenstein is famously one of the universal horror classics of the 30s and 40s. There is a scene in Shelley's original novel where Frankenstein is commanded to make a mate for his creature, but he destroys his second creation before finishing it. Only in the movie did the female creature come to life, and for the life of me I have no idea on earth how this avoided a lawsuit from Universal. If I was an entertainment lawyer and I heard a rival company was making a movie about a bride of Frankenstein, I'd be all over that. In any event, with their existing indie cred and the backing of Sting, whose band The Police had blown up into an absolute phenomenon by 1985, they were able to secure 13 million dollars to make their movie. Sting himself, who was still acting at the time and had just made an appearance as Faye to in David Lynch's Dune, agreed to be the Baron von Frankenstein himself, named Charles in this version rather than Victor, and Jennifer Beals, who was almost indescribably famous at the time due to her debut performance in the hit movie Flashdance, came on as the titular bride. She's since gone on to do any number of things, including Vampire's Kiss with Nicolas Cage and a lengthy stint on the TV series The L Word, but Flashdance left such an indelible mark on popular culture that she will always be associated with that movie and Clancy Brown, who had already accumulated his own cult credibility with 1984's The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension, and who would go on to cement his status as a genre legend with his role as the Kurgan in 1985's Highlander, agreed to appear as the creature, who would, confusingly enough, be named Victor in this version. We could go on a lot longer about how amazing Clancy Brown is, from his extensive voice work to his classic genre cameos to his charming engagement with fans, but there's just too much to cover. He's Mr. Krabs in SpongeBob SquarePants and Lex Luthor in Justice League Unlimited. It's the whole package. Moving on. The film also stars the late legendary David Rappaport as circus performer Rinaldo. Rappaport was born with achondroplasia, a congenital condition that affected his height, and after an unsuccessful stint as a teacher, he decided to move into avant-garde theater alongside legendary character actor and future seventh doctor Sylvester McCoy. This led to several big roles in film and television, he's probably best known as Randall in Time Bandits, but he also headlined a short-lived TV series called The Wizard and did some very memorable guest appearances on The Young Ones in L.A. Law. Sadly, he struggled with depression later in life and died by suicide in 1990. One of his co-stars in this movie was also famous for appearances in The Young Ones, Alexei Sale, who appeared in every episode to deliver a stream-of-consciousness monologue that would interrupt the main action. My favorite, which pops to mind every time I hear the man's name, is his claim that British people always pretend to be foreign to appear more sophisticated. Abba? Abba? Swedish? I knew them when they're a Welsh clog-dancing trio in Lancashire! Abby, Betty, Boris and Angela! But he's also had his own series, Alexi Sales Stuff, and he's made appearances in everything from Doctor Who to Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Rolls-Royce Phantom 2, 4.3 liter, 30 horsepower, six-cylinder engine with Stromberg downdraft carburetor, can go from 0 to 100 kilometers an hour in 12.5 seconds. And I even like the color. Here he plays Megar, the sinister owner of the circus Victor and Ronaldo come to work at. His sadistic and murderous partner, Bella, is played by Phil Daniels, who is appearing even now in the House of the Dragon series for HBO. I will say, just about everybody in this movie is a famous character actor on some level or another. They really did a great job of picking actors who could bring gravitas to small parts. Speaking of, there are a few other major actors in minor roles here. Timothy Spall plays the Igor-esque assistant Paulus, but he's much better known as Peter Pettigrew in the big-budget adaptations of Harry Potter that have now become unwatchable thanks to J.K. Rowling's transformation into full-time garbage person. Frankenstein's mentor and the Dr. Pretorius figure in this film, Dr. Zalas, barely gives Quentin Crisp more than a few lines to deliver before he dies in a massive fire, but the writer and raconteur was already very famous even before he began acting. He was the inspiration for Stingsong, an Englishman in New York, and as a queer icon, he predicted he would live a hundred years with a decade off for good behavior and did indeed pass away at the age of 90. And of course, Carrie Elwes, still two years away from his breakout role in The Princess Bride and almost a full two decades before his iconic performance in the divisive horror movie Saw, appears here as cavalry officer and romantic rival Joseph. It's a small part, and I really wish they'd given him more to do because he does a lot with what he has, but we'll get into that as we jump into the movie proper. Speaking of, the film begins after a set of elegant title cards accompanied by string music. Uh, the score was composed by Maurice Jarret, who is one of those industry legends with hundreds of credits, including Ghost, Dr. Zivago, and Lawrence of Arabia, on a stormy night at the Frankenstein Castle. And we all know what that means. The Baron, Charles von Frankenstein, and his associate, Dr. Zalas, whose name is unfortunately just a bit too close to Dr. Zayas for Sting to shout it out without it sounding like a Simpsons reference, are waiting for the storm to reach its zenith so they can animate a woman to serve as the companion to the creature, as per the original novel. Although, none of this is conveyed in dialogue for quite some time, and to be honest, it's not especially clear visually even where the three characters are in relation to each other. Charles and Zalas look at something off-screen, and it then cuts to a close-up of the creature, but he's not in the room with them, and there's any number of moments like this in the movie where either the director or the editor fail to establish basic spatial relationships in a way that facilitates clear storytelling and it doesn't seem like it's something he's doing for artistic effect either. It really feels more like they finished production and realized too late that they'd simply forgotten to get master shots of many scenes. It's very off-putting, I don't deny it. The two men go down to the lab, where we get a pretty familiar version of the classic reanimation sequence made famous by director James Whale in 1931's Frankenstein. Lots of throwing of levers, lots of raising of shrouded bodies into the air. In this version, Jennifer Beale's bride is raised up on a network of straps that supports her weight as if she's in a medical-themed bondage harness, and lots of tense shots of the stern-faced Frankenstein's refusal to yield to the forces of natural death. I will say, Sting has the exact perfect face for this kind of arrogant contemplation of the infinite. The film gives him very little to do beyond brood and smolder, but there's no question that the camera absolutely loves this guy. It's worth mentioning, by the way, that this entire notion of reanimating the dead through lightning comes from Wales' version of Frankenstein and not Shelley herself. Although she was quite well-read and knew of Galvani's experiments in what was then known as medical electricity, her Frankenstein used alchemical means to create his creature in the manner of the legendary Homunculus. It's become such a reused trope, though, that nobody since Whale can possibly conceive of a reanimation sequence without a massive electrical discharge shocking the dead back to life. All that said, there's some amazingly creepy and inventive work going on here as Frankenstein's other experiments begin reanimating spontaneously, including the lower half of a woman that takes a few stumbling steps before collapsing. It's viscerally disturbing. After the usual near-disaster that ends in a miraculous success, the creature convulses when his mate is galvanized by lightning, the first signs of a psychic connection between the two that will return again and again throughout the movie without ever amounting too much beyond an excuse to get him into the action during the third act, Frankenstein cuts off the bandage to discover that his creation is not just alive, but also conventionally attractive. Naturally, this makes him rethink his commitment to presenting her to his other creation as a companion, and when the creature finds out, and it's worth mentioning here that Clancy Brown's makeup, although certainly elaborate and time-consuming and apparently allergic reaction-causing, is far less removed from humanity than Boris Karloff's iconic look, he begins smashing equipment. This leads to a massive fire that ends with Zalus and Paulus dead in the Tower and Ruins, and the creature seemingly perishes in the blaze as well but as we see, he flees into the nearby forest instead. Frankenstein observes his new conventionally beautiful creation as she wakes up, confused and terrified, and although I don't think Beals is ever given consistent direction on how to perform the part, I really have to say that she throws herself quite decidedly energetically into whatever emotion Rodham's decided she should be exhibiting in any given scene. Here she seems to be channeling some kind of a wild bird that's waking up in a cage and doesn't really understand what's happening beyond the basic reality of confinement, and it's very affecting. Frankenstein's evidently smitten with her, and the two of them exchange a few simple words before he tells her to rest. The next day, the creature wakes up in the forest, a nearby grazing fawn signifies his essentially harmless and childlike nature for the audience, and wanders aimlessly, enchanted by the beauty of nature, until he comes out near a town and finds a group of children taunting and teasing a little person named Rinaldo. Thus begins the theme of this entire strand of the plot, everyone is awful and only physical power can prevent you from being tortured and humiliated. It's a weird theme. Rinaldo, seeing that the children run away from the big man, decides to befriend him for his own protection as the two of them head on the road to Budapest, where Rinaldo hopes to secure work at a circus. A few things here. First, because the movie never specifies where or when it's set, it's difficult to determine how long this journey takes, but presuming that Frankenstein's castle is in the south of Germany near Ingolstadt as in the novel, it's probably about six days on foot. Maybe less if Frankenstein is Austrian in this version instead of German. It's hard to tell because everyone speaks with a British accent. Second, I really think that one of the single best decisions this movie makes is in pairing Ronaldo up early with the creature and spending a significant chunk of the film on their relationship. I mean, admittedly, it is a plot sink in terms of time, but it's the most charming and effective part of the movie in some ways. Not only do Rapoport and Brown have an instant chemistry together on screen, but one of the common threads to pretty much every adaptation of Frankenstein is the idea that the creature could have been gentle and noble and kind if he wasn't constantly met with cruelty. Everyone always loves those little scenes where someone manages for a few brief moments to see past the creature's terrifying exterior and befriend the decent soul within. Everyone always laments those moments when it all falls apart because the mob can't understand what they're seeing. And this film basically decides to go full fan service by making it to no small degree about this relationship and the ways it betters the creature's life. We all want to see the creature have a friend, basically, and this is just so satisfying, even though it's obvious emotional manipulation. As the two of them go on their way, with Ronaldo sitting on the creature's shoulder, there's always a little bit of a self-serving aspect to Ronaldo's friendship, even though he obviously does care about his new ally and recognizes that the best way to get what he wants is to make it worth the creature's while as well, we jump back over to Frankenstein, sitting by the fire with his repugnantly misogynist friend Clerval, played by Anthony Higgins, who's probably best known as Professor Wraith in Young Sherlock Holmes. Clerval more or less flat out says that Frankenstein would be best off training his new patient, who Frankenstein claims is an amnesiac girl who survived a lightning strike, as a simpering concubine, but Frankenstein insists that he wants to make a new kind of woman out of her who can stand independent as his equal. That evening, the new creation wanders down to him entirely nude, and this is where I begin questioning the film's feminist credentials. Because it's not as though the nudity serves any dramatic purpose here. Oh, I'm sure there are some people who would say that it signifies her innocence and her ignorance of society's customs. But even by the 1980s, people were pointing out that this trope only ever got applied to conventionally attractive women and never, say, dudes. Plus, it's blatantly obvious that it's not actually Jennifer Beals here. The actor is shown with her head, and only her head concealed by convenient shadows until she gets close, at which point the camera cuts to Beale's face and handy furniture to block her body. This is transparently exploitative and unnecessary, and it's a clear sign that the film is never going to pay anything more than lip service to its ostensibly feminist premise. You may begin to hear my analysis of the film become a little more critical from here on out. Oh, and this scene also establishes that somehow Charles sewed her together from corpses without leaving a single visible scar, which is really fucking impressive when you think about it. The new creature asks Frankenstein who he is and who she is, and he decides to name her after the first woman Eva. Which just feels so unintentionally hilarious to me. It's like getting a scene where Bruce Wayne says, A bat! That's it! It's an omen! I shall become. A bathmat. Like, why even make the biggest and most obvious reference in the history of literature if you're going to get the name wrong? It's just weird. The maid, Mrs. Bowman, played by Geraldine Page, who is probably best known as the voice of Madame Medusa in The Rescuers, comes to haul her off and get some clothes on her, and Eva hisses and snarls like an alley cat at her as the two of them struggle. Again, I have no idea why Eva is sometimes confused and childlike because she's still struggling to unscramble her brains from the resurrection process and other times acting like a literal wild animal, but Beals really does give it her all from moment to moment. I think I just wish it was a more coherently thought out character concept is all. Frankenstein tells Bowman to teach her how to be a lady, but we don't really get that sequence. Instead, we cut back and forth between Rinaldo teaching the creature how to share his food and Eva learning how to eat with utensils. And I really feel like this is the biggest problem with the movie. There's never any faith in Eva's narrative as something that can carry the story. The creature stuff is easy, it's engaging and familiar and fun. He's an innocent on a picaresque journey with his streetwise and disreputable friend learning the ways of the world together as they make a team with the creature's strength and Ronaldo's wits. That's picaresque as in episodic, not picturesque. Although I'll give Rodham this, he knows how to shoot nature very beautifully. It's not hard to make that narrative a charming little series of stories that appeal to the audience and frankly could be turned into a weekly TV series. But Eva's narrative takes a lot of time to develop properly, and every cutaway to the creature really hurts it. She's got to be transformed from a wild and naive innocent to a worldly wise woman of society, and along the way she has to find herself caught up in courtly intrigues that endanger not just her social standing, but that of her patron and creator, the Baron von Frankenstein. She has to embroil herself in a love triangle. There's a potential duel. The officer she falls for has to turn out to be a cad, Everything needs to have stakes as she comes to question the story she was given about her past and challenges the man who said he wanted an equal but really wants a very impressive inferior, and the film never gives any of that time to breathe because we have to keep cutting away to the road movie antics of the creature and his buddy Ronaldo. As a result, nothing Eva does feels like it has any meaning. It's all just shorthanded and backfilled and consequence-free, and it's clear that it's not where the director's heart really lies. This is basically two movies, and the one that gets the title is also the one that gets short shrift. Case in point, the chicken scene with the creature and Ronaldo takes up about twice as much time as Eva's, as the two of them share their respective dreams. The creature wants to reunite with Eva, who he thinks hates him, while Rinaldo wants to visit Venice and see the streets made of water. And as soon as he says it, you absolutely know that he is not coming out of this movie alive. Characters with simple dreams of travel and seeing the world have a survival rate worse than Star Trek red shirts in drama. It is all very convincing and heartfelt, even if Clancy Brown's habit of gasping out his words accidentally makes him sound like Stanley Spadowski in UHF, but it's also, as is the nature of picaresque stories, mostly episodic and unrelated to character growth. The creature is not going to come out of his travels greatly changed by his experiences, and that's a shame because Eva is, and the movie is ostensibly, about her although it is telling that even the title itself is about her relationship to other characters and not her identity outside of her status as the creature's intended mate. As with Jacob's wife and Jennifer's body, we're encouraged to see her as an appendage to others from the beginning, and this movie doesn't try nearly as hard as it should to subvert that expectation. We then see Frankenstein and Clerval racing their horses through the wood in a little hunting challenge, which Frankenstein wins because he's so determined to come out on top in everything. He then shares a little more detail of Eva's progress with Clerval, because of course the primary principle of storytelling is tell, don't show, and Clerval makes no secret of his belief that Frankenstein is doing all this pretty much just to sleep with his protege. Frankenstein insists he's making an equal instead, but for all his loathsome beliefs about the female gender, Clerval is very astute when it comes to his old friend and recognizes that Frankenstein doesn't really want an equal so much as he wants a partner whose beauty, grace, and intelligence flatter him even more by her obeisance to him. Basically, he wants to show everyone that a woman who's any man's equal is still his inferior, and Clerval predicts no small amount of trouble when he learns that the mind of her own that Frankenstein is cultivating is, in fact, a mind of her own. All short-handed, sadly, but a very good insight about a lot of men who want an independent woman so long as they're not, you know, independent from him. There's a movie called Her starring Scarlett Johansson that does a lot more with this theme than Rodham does because it's not afraid to really devote itself to it and carry it through to its final conclusion. Meanwhile, Ronaldo and the Creature rob the collections box in a church run by a greedy and unsympathetic priest, played by Andy de la Tour, and use the proceeds to get drunk for the first time in the Creature's life before getting thrown in the river as troublemakers. It's a cute sequence, but it is completely and totally unnecessary to the broader narrative, and have I mentioned that this movie is two hours long? Because it's two hours long, and it really feels like it. And a lot of the most obvious places where cuts could happen come from Rinaldo and the Creature's end of the narrative, but it's really clear that they hacked up Eva's story instead. Also, the trouble they make is buying ale and drinking it. There's not even a good tavern brawl here to show off how strong the creature is, even though it's supposedly a rough crowd and we could probably use an action sequence right around here. Ronaldo and the creature make it out of the river and walk off their hangovers, which is yet another cute scene that's utterly inconsequential and takes away from the main narrative. That's, again, it's just that's the problem with the movie, is all of the charming stuff is inconsequential and all of the important stuff isn't given the attention it deserves. Speaking of, Ava is now wearing dresses and spinning in circles with childlike wonder, which is part of a trope called Born Sexy Yesterday that Margot Carlson talks about a lot on a podcast called The Botcast, where adult women are infantilized, or more accurately and disturbingly, where children are given adult bodies to make it acceptable to sexualize them. Remember, given our hypothetical six-day timeline here, this is essentially a newborn, but because she's being played by an adult actor, it's seen as okay for the Baron to essentially lust after her while acting in a parental role. I'd like to give the film credit and say it's depicting this concept in order to criticize it, but I think that would require actually spending some time on this story and giving Sting something more to do than brood arrogantly. Which, again, yes, he does so fucking well. The spinning makes the creature dizzy as well, because again, the two are psychically linked, and this is important because... dot, dot, dot. I guess because it shows that the two really are destined to be together, which is important because the movie otherwise spends exactly zero time establishing a relationship between the two of them, and given the ultimate ending, we kind of need to believe that they're an OTP for this whole thing to make any kind of sense. OTP, one true pairing, it's a fanfic term. Just means they're meant to be. The creature and Rinaldo are nearing Budapest now, and when Rinaldo helps mend his friend's clothing, he sees the horrifying scars on the creature's chest, which he assumes were inflicted, not a result of him being stitched together out of corpses, and he's filled with sympathy for him. He decides to give his friend a name, calling him Victor, because it means he who wins. And if I was trimming this film way down, I'd still keep this scene, because it's so moving and affecting and sweet. Jumping ahead in Eva's My Fair Lady speedrun, any percent. She's now learning how to ride. Sting and Beals both learn from the movie, although they're still a little awkward when mounting and dismounting. And enough of that. We're in Budapest now, and we need some comedy business between Victor and Ronaldo, where Ronaldo decides to buy them both toffee apples, and Victor wanders off to watch a Punch and Judy show. I'm sorry, I don't mean to harp on this as a problem with the film because there's nothing actually wrong with any of these scenes and both Clancy Brown and David Rappaport do a lot with their roles. It's just that we're almost halfway through this very long movie and so little has actually happened because they keep doing these little episodic bits that feel like they should be part of a Victor and Ronaldo weekly TV show. Which, again, I would totally watch. Highway to Heaven but with Frankenstein's monster? Yes. Absolutely yes. The pair finally get to the circus, which is at this point the most consequential plot development in the first 45 minutes, and meet with the owner, Magar, to try to get a job. Megar takes an instant dislike to Ronaldo, repeatedly using a common slur for little people that I’m not sure is intended to represent Megar’s loathsome and disreputable character, the historical context of that term as a common usage in the era, or simply an actual slur that they’re using because it’s not like the 1980s were particularly progressive in this regard either. One of the hazards of watching a period film that’s also a period piece there. In any event, Magar has no interest in hiring Rinaldo, but Victor's raw physical power makes him extremely useful as a laborer, and Rinaldo negotiates them in as a package deal. And it's obvious from the way that Magar and his partner Bella look at each other that this isn't just a mild disdain. They hate Ronaldo. Rinaldo then shows off the act that makes him worth bringing on, a trapeze act where he deliberately falls off into the crowd before being caught by a hidden harness that redirects his momentum into a second swing. Rinaldo shows them the secret to the trick, a concealed line with a hook and a harness, and it's so obvious that they're going to sabotage it later in the movie that he might as well say out loud, so if you wanted to murder me and make it look like an accident, here's how you do it! <laughs> Back with Eva and Frankenstein, their ride takes them to an abandoned monastery where she sees the bones of the monks interred there and contemplates death for the first time. I feel like a movie that really cared about these characters could have made a lot more out of the idea that she's learning about death for the first time, little knowing that Frankenstein has conquered it and she's the living proof. As it is, the scene just sort of sits there with Frankenstein looking petulant and uncomfortable about having to answer her questions. That night, she returns to the monastery, fleeing in the middle of a thunderstorm and forcing the baron to chase her down, and she says she wants to know more about herself and where she came from. She faints in his arms, and we then cut back to the roaring fireplace in Castle Frankenstein as they continue the conversation without pause, and it's just, it's one of the oddest scene transitions I think I've ever seen. Again, I feel very much like there have to be some deleted sequences or possibly added sequences because the narrative flow of Eva and Frankenstein's story is so odd that I can only assume that they didn't work for test audiences and they had to go back and add stuff in or take stuff away. I do know there were reshoots, but I don't know how extensive they actually were. Only that even the director says that they did not do as much as he wanted to fix the problems with the movie. Back at the circus, Rinaldo performs for the crowd and Victor, who doesn't understand it's just an act, runs into the tent and tries to catch him. This delights the audience and Rinaldo decides to incorporate it into the act and use it to negotiate higher wages. Megar agrees, but he's clearly unhappy and Bella is downright murderous in his dirty looks and Rinaldo is not reading the room which is kind of odd given that Ronaldo is otherwise portrayed as a pretty sharp and streetwise kind of guy and you'd think he'd have antenna up for people who plan to do him harm. But given that he keeps saying Budapest is only the beginning, it's entirely possible that he thinks of this as a short-term gig to build their reputation and give them seed money to move on to bigger and better things, and he'll be out of there before Megar and Bella can cause any serious problems for him. Spoiler alert, he is incorrect in that regard. Eva, meanwhile, is getting ready for her very first society event, held by a countess. We're not told anything more about her, not even her name, although she's played by the magnificently monikered Verushka von Lindorf, and given that that's a pseudonym, I'm going to assume that's the character's name as well. The Countess gives off the vibe of someone who sees all other women as rivals and who interrogates Eva about her background in a way that sounds a little less than casual. And Eva also meets with Joseph, a handsome young cavalry officer who disdains Eva's book learning as though he's about to launch into a rousing rendition of Gaston at literally any second. God, wouldn't a young Carrie Elwes have been amazing as Gaston? Anyway. Eva makes a social faux pas when a child's kitten runs up to her and she roars at it, thinking it to be a quote-unquote tiny lion. And first, this is a nonsensical scene, because they keep establishing that she devours books and reads voraciously and can keep up with the finest intellectual minds in Germany, but apparently the concept of a quote-unquote cat completely slipped past her. And second, and more frustrating, it's a scene without any consequence. When Eva goes to the ball, there should be a sense that she's trying to hold on to an impersonation of the gracious manners that society women are trained into from birth in this era, and we should feel like she has to impress the countess and charm the guests in order to avoid too many inquiries into the false past Frankenstein has created for her. Instead, she snarls and roars and makes a scene right there in front of everybody, and the only thing that happens is Frankenstein basically asks her, yo, lady, what the fuck? the coach on the way home before chuckling indulgently when he finds out why she did it. Again, nobody is interested in making Eva's story an actual story, so there's no stakes to anything. It doesn't matter whether or not she can be made over into a society woman. And it's kind of a shame because the bones to this are all there. They're just not being given any meat. Over in Budapest, Victor has integrated himself fully into the act as Ronaldo's quote-unquote mother, dressing in drag and amusing the audience with his mock concern over his quote-unquote baby's fate. But one night after Ronaldo collects his pay, Magar does a little Will no one rid me of that turbulent priest speech to Bella? By mentioning that if Ronaldo wasn't around, it would be easy to con Victor out of his wages and find someone else to do the high wire portion of the show. Ronaldo, apparently oblivious to the danger he's in, mentions that they almost have the money to get to Venice, and that he's just one day away from retirement if he can pull this last job. Okay, I exaggerate slightly, but they do lay it on a little thick for Ronaldo's impending demise to be any kind of actual surprise. Back at the castle, Frankenstein watches Eva sleep, so that particular creepy and controlling trope didn't start with Twilight, but at least here it's presented as creepy and controlling. And the next day she goes out for a ride by herself and bumps into Joseph. It's a little contrived, not because I don't think Joseph would arrange for something like this, but because there's no way at this point that Frankenstein would just let her out on her own given how possessive he is. And while I can see Eva finding little ways to get out from under his thumb and spend some time alone, and I can see that kind of challenge getting under Frankenstein's skin in a way he wouldn't even admit to himself, let alone her... This movie is again simply not willing to do the work to make Eva's storyline logical or interesting, and we instead cut away to a little moment where the circus workers bully Victor by tricking him into riding a bucking horse while he asks to sit on one. Victor really likes horses, and so does Eva, and I feel again like this is just one of those half-baked attempts to create a connection between them. The horse-riding scene nearly ends in violence, and I have to say, whatever else you might think of Bella, you have to admire his courage in bullying a man who has a foot of height and 150 pounds of solid muscle on him, but Rinaldo interferes and diffuses the situation as the scene ends. Yes, I know, Bella does have a knife, and in fact he has an anachronistic switchblade, which probably wouldn't be invented for another 30 or 40 years. Still, though, Clancy Brown is an intimidatingly large man. You might notice that I'm jumping back and forth a lot, by the way, and that's mainly because the movie jumps around a lot. Having two parallel narratives for much of the first two acts is kind of exhausting for audiences, and I I just really think they would have been better off focusing on one. Eva goes investigating and finds the sealed-off entrance to the tower where she was created. She asks Frankenstein about it, and about why he was thrown out of the University of Ingolstadt, and he's glib and condescending and deflecting all of her questions in a way that she obviously picks up on. It's not just that he's lying, it's that he's not putting much effort into lying because he doesn't believe she's capable of noticing the deception, and she clearly prickles at his smug attitude. This is the kind of thing the movie needed a lot more of. It's a good scene. And then... As has been none too subtly predicted, Bella sabotages Ronaldo's harness just before his performance and he falls to his death right in front of Victor. It's not immediately fatal. He gets a last big speech where he lets Victor know the harness was sabotaged and gives a few inspirational and, frankly, sappy final words. But ultimately, he's too badly injured and he dies in Victor's arms. Victor collects the money they've been saving up and leaves, but on his way out, he passes Magar's cart and hears him arguing with Bella over the necessity of actually killing the performer. Bella is understandably annoyed that his partner is suddenly all w- oh, Well, yes, I said we'd be better off without him, and I told you I hated him and I wished he was out of the way, but I didn't mean murder him. Furious at the discovery, Victor overturns the cart with both men inside it, and when Bella emerges knife in hand, Victor simply picks him up and hurls him into some spikes placed in front of the lion cage to keep people from getting too close. Bella dies, and then there's an edit I can only describe as a commercial break? It's a transcendently weird creative decision. I think they did it because they wanted to force the audience to sit with the moment for a few seconds of darkness and silence, but it really feels like we're about to hear a continuity announcer say, and we'll be back. Right after this. Apparently much later, Eva goes back to the abandoned monastery and finds Victor sleeping on the ground nearby. It's as though the director suddenly went, oh shit, I'm into the third act and I've done nothing but waste time with this picaresque bullshit. Uh, yeah, Victor's back in Germany now. Walked back, same deal as before but a lot less fun. There we go, he and Eva are meeting. Boom and it's not even like they make much out of the meeting. Eva mistakes him for a beggar and gives him a coin, and Victor is too tongue-tied by her beauty to explain where he knows her from, and the psychic connection they've been making so much of isn't employed at all in this scene as any kind of narrative device. This is just a chance encounter that doesn't have any real emotional resonance, despite Gervais' attempts to give it some with the score, which is doing a lot of heavy lifting in this movie. Victor decides to woo Eva, first giving her the medallion that Rinaldo bequeathed to him of Venice, which Frankenstein mistakenly assumes to be a gift from Joseph, causing an argument between them, and then buying a necklace made of cut glass jewels for her from a peddler played by Ken Campbell, who is in Creep and a Fish Called Wanda. There's a charming little moment where it looks like the peddler is going to cheat Victor out of all his hard-earned money, but he instead calls him back and returns all but a single coin. But when Victor tries to climb to her window and give her the present, he sees her being presented with a real diamond necklace, and he realizes he can never compete with the wealth of the Baron von Frankenstein. He throws the fake gems into the river and goes out into town. That night, Frankenstein holds a costume ball where he impresses the guests by releasing a flood of sparkling confetti-like rain over the entire hall. I say impresses here, even though I can't imagine that any collection of rich people would be especially thrilled by getting glittery stuff in their hair and all over their clothes and in their drinks and in their food, and this is literally a revenge prank people pull on homophobes in the present day. And I say sparkling confetti because I don't know what this stuff is, but it ain't glitter. Glitter as we know it wasn't invented until the 1930s, and prior to that people dusted ground glass on things they wanted to look glittery. And if you think getting blasted with a clot of glitter is bad, just imagine if it was actually ground glass getting in your eyes and lungs. Instead of being charmed by his antics, though, Eva sneaks off with Joseph and they have a dalliance that may or may not go as far as sex. Again, I feel like this is a half-baked scene. This should be an important moment in Eva's life, either because she is having sex for the first time and discovering something about herself in the process, or because she's not and she has a reason why she doesn't. Making it ambiguous puts the emphasis on Frankenstein's reaction and his emotions, and given that this is supposed to be about Ava, that's kind of a failing on the movie's part. It also just sort of peters out as a dramatic moment, with Frankenstein voyeuristically observing them before walking away unseen, which means that they'll need to stage the exact same moment again in a few minutes in order to have the confrontation the scene demands. The next day, Frankenstein shows markedly less patience with her. He chides her for correcting him over the authorship of Percy Shelley's Prometheus Unbound, and she responds by walking over to the bookshelves, handing him the book, and storming out. So wait, Percy Shelley exists in this universe? Did he never marry? Or did his wife never write Frankenstein? Or do all of these characters spend all their off-screen time going, no, it's so weird, like she got some of the details wrong, my name is Charles, but she freaking predicted that I'd reanimate the dead. Because this has to have been set after Prometheus Unbound came out, and that book wasn't published until two years after Frankenstein. So it's not like you can even claim that Mary Shelley based her book on a true story that she heard somewhere. No, her book came out first in this timeline, and then Charles von Frankenstein started doing his experiments. In any event... Clerval needles Frankenstein over his obvious inability to handle a true equal, and Frankenstein throws the book in the fire and says, whose Prometheus is it now? It's an ominous moment, but again, I just don't feel like the film makes as much out of it as it could, given that it's an explicit threat by Frankenstein to destroy what he can't control, as we're turning the corner into the third act. The circus comes to town, and they spot Victor and convince the mayor to round up a posse and hunt him down as a murderer. This scene feels tremendously forced, not just because of the huge coincidence of the circus suddenly showing up in the exact same little town that Victor is hanging out in, but because traveling shows like this traditionally have a terrible relationship with law enforcement and authority figures, famously so, in fact, and the idea that they would risk bringing attention to themselves by charging into the mayor's house, literally they are haranguing him at his own dinner table about the need to capture Victor, is kind of absurd. Frankly, the odds are 50-50 at best that the mayor isn't just gonna lock everyone up and let the courts figure it all out, and Magar would have known that. Plus, having a character named Magar talking to a mayor feels like an Abbott and Costello sketch just waiting to happen. The mob pursues Victor, but he's learned coming from Ronaldo, I guess, and he finds a place to hide. Once they've gone past, he finds a blind beggar who's unable to see and thus ignores his unusual countenance only to feel his face and shout to the mob, Here he is! It's an amusing, if somewhat bleak, inversion of the traditional saintly blind man trope from the original Bride of Frankenstein that this film certainly isn't remaking. Victor is locked away in a prison cell, lost to despair. Eva goes to see Joseph in a scene that feels a little too much like a repeated beat, and Frankenstein pursues her this time. He interrupts their tryst and threatens to kill Joseph, who responds with a cold stare and a casual, As you like, sir. And that day, Frankenstein was amazed to discover that when he was saying, As you like, what he meant was, I'm going to kick your ass, motherfucker. Okay, we don't actually get any narration to that effect, but it's literally impossible to watch this scene now and not think of Peter Falk in The Princess Bride. Joseph is happy to accept Frankenstein's challenge to duel, but he also mentions that he never really saw Eva as anything more than a casual fling and she means nothing to him. Which causes Eva to storm out, and Frankenstein follows, and I kinda feel like this is a pretty limp and inconclusive resolution to this plot, when we could've gotten a sword fight between Sting and Carrie Elwes? Like, think the Princess Bride fight scene combined with the Dune fight scene and we could've gotten that! I will just chalk that up alongside all the other missed opportunities in the film, though. They return to the castle, where Frankenstein chastises her for humiliating him, and she stands up for herself in what's probably the closest this film comes to fulfilling its feminist brief. She says he doesn't own her and he didn't make her, a taunt that finally goads Frankenstein into taking her down a secret passage into the tower and revealing her true origins, And it would be a really great scene if not for this extremely weird editing habit where people change positions and wind up in different rooms while continuing their conversation without pause, which makes it feel like they're having multiple discussions about the same topic over a long period. I don't understand it, and I think it's just a sloppy attempt to cover the joins where the reshoots happened. Eva's furious at the deception, and feels isolated by the truth about her origins in a way that no other living being could, and Victor feels her pain from his prison cell because that psychic link has to factor in somehow. Charles tells her that she's meant for him, not for some monster, and she spurns him violently in response and locks herself in her room. He then decides to rape her, which prompts Victor to break out of his cell Hulk-style and steal a horse to ride to the castle to rescue her. See? The horse stuff pays off, too. It's all really important after all. Maybe not quite important enough to have all that screen time devoted to it, but hey, we're here now. Frankenstein uses his key to let himself into her room, and I feel like this is where the supposed feminism of the movie fully collapses. Because despite a token attempt to defend herself with a hatpin, Eva is utterly useless in the face of the raw physical power of Sting circa 1985, and he easily overpowers her. He pins her to the bed, slaps her around, and attempts to force himself on her in a viscerally unpleasant scene to watch. And when Victor bursts in to save her, she literally faints in terror and is absent from the rest of the narrative so it's not really so much the bride as it is the creature, but hey, she's in there too, sorta. Frankenstein grabs a torch to menace his creation, and speaking of things it would have been nice if we established at some point during the two-hour movie, Sting has to say the line, You always were afraid of fire, weren't you? Because it's never actually come up before, even though there are scenes of Victor and Ronaldo roasting chicken over an open fire, and it would have been very easy to insert a line or two about it. Frankenstein then chases Victor through the whole castle, into the ruined tower, up the stairs, and all the way onto the roof, and then stumbles and falls to his death without Clancy Brown ever really fighting back. I guess they were trying to avoid making Victor morally culpable for Frankenstein's demise, but he's so much more explicitly villainous here than in any other rendition of the story, except maybe the Hammer films, that it really just makes Victor seem like a passive observer to the triumph of good over evil. And given that Eva's still out like a light back in the bedroom, it kinda deflates the whole impact of the climax to a damp squib. Eva and Victor reunite, and they bond over their shared status as created beings. We then quick dissolve to the two of them sailing to Venice, as a superimposed Force Ghost version of Rinaldo tells them to follow their dreams. Which, I mean, it's it's not a bad message, but it's an extremely ham-fisted reminder of it, and I kind of feel like it shows just how little the director really thought he'd sold the audience on it over the course of the movie. If this is about the importance of following your dreams, it's lost on us to a sufficient degree that we need to have David Rappaport pop back up at the end to explicitly mention it, which isn't great storytelling by any standards. And will I hang on to this movie? Maybe for a little while. I'd kind of like to watch it with my wife, who also has fond memories of the 80s and is a big Sting fan. But ultimately, I think it'll go back to the store. There's a good concept here at the heart of this movie, and I can see how with a little more polish at the script stage to trim out a lot of the picaresque stuff and really focus the film on The Bride in The Bride, you might wind up with a sharp feminist take on the Frankenstein mythos. But this feels like it doesn't know what it wants to be, and as a result it kind of falls between two stools, and much of the inventiveness of the concept is lost in the execution. Despite some charming acting and some good individual scenes, it never really coheres as a movie. And if you want to talk about feminist Frankensteins, women who are born sexy yesterday, or about anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter as halfhorror, and on Tumblr and Letterboxd as halfpricehorror. My watch list on Letterboxd contains everything I plan to tackle in future episodes. If there's something you'd like to hear about, let me know. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash halfpricehorror and hear episodes a week early, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror... Look, I'll be honest, I'm not sure I can actually get around to next episode. I've been really busy at work lately, I got a whole car thing I've been putting off, and Christopher Lee keeps leaving me voicemails about my appointment with the Wicker Man. But maybe I can bring you along to the waiting room for that, and we can talk a little bit about a movie while I hang out? Don't worry, we'll figure it out. I'm sure it'll be fine. See you then.